0: This is Crowcasts, the podcast from Crow in the UK, a leading audit, tax, advisory, and risk firm with global reach and local expertise. In our podcasts, you will hear from our specialists offering insight and pragmatic advice to businesses of all sizes, professional practices, non-profit organisations, pension funds, and private clients. Hello, and welcome to the November edition of Fraudcast which takes place monthly as part of Crowcasts, the podcast from Crow UK. My name is Jim G, and I'm a Partner and Head of Forensic Services for Crow. I'm also a visiting Professor and Chair of the Centre for Counter-Fraud Studies at University of Portsmouth, which is Europe's leading research centre concerning cybercrime, fraud, bribery, and corruption. The Fraudcast series provides a mixture of comment, interviews, news, and discussion, The reason why this broadcast is so relevant now is because we're in the middle of a period of massively increased fraud and cybercrime, something which the latest crime statistics, which I'll talk about later, show. And this has been spurred on by the economic crisis arising from the COVID-19 health crisis. This week, I will be focusing in on the latest fraud and cybercrime news, as well as interviewing Jonathan Tickner, a partner and head of financial crime at Peters and Peters a leading firm of lawyers specialising in financial crime. But first, let's turn to some of the key news. The National Audit Office, the NAO, has estimated that the UK government will spend more than £210 billion on its response to the Covid-19 pandemic. This money has rightly been spent on supporting organisations and individuals across the country in this time of unprecedented economic stress and the vast majority of the money has been correctly applied for and received. However, there is always a dishonest minority, and the NIO has published its report, Investigation into the Bounce Back Loan Scheme, on one important element of the government's support package. The Treasury developed the scheme with the Department for Business, and it was launched on 4th of May, and will be open until 30th of November, with government retaining the right to extend it. It is expected that BBLS will have lent between 38 and 48 billion by 4th of November 2020, substantially more than it initially expected. The government recognises that the decision to provide funds quickly leaves taxpayers exposed to a significant risk of fraud, including fraud caused by self-certification, multiple applications, lack of a legitimate business, impersonation and organised crime. The government expects likely total credit and fraud losses of between 35% and 60% based on historic losses observed in prior programs which most closely resemble the scheme. Assuming the scheme lends 43 billion this would imply a potential cost to the government and taxpayers of 15 to 26 billion sterling an enormous sum. The nature of the losses are likely to be on a spectrum from High volume low value opportunistic fraud through multiple fraudulent BBLS applications from fake companies through to high value low volume fraud by organised crime groups. The number of companies registered each week after the government announced the scheme rose by 285% to a record 21,616 by the end of June. So what is to be done? For many years, police resources focused on fraud have diminished, and it is now hard to persuade them to take on a case of fraud unless there is something which makes it particularly serious. The business department do not have counter-fraud resources to investigate this scale of fraud. So perhaps it's time for private sector forensic and legal specialists to help tackle this problem and to ensure that there are clear and visible consequences for the dishonest minority. The government did the right thing in supporting UK business. Perhaps specialists from UK business can now support the government in identifying and investigating the fraudsters and recovering the losses. And now for some more news. The latest crime statistics have been published. At the end of October, we saw their publication, Crime Statistics for England and Wales, by the Office for National Statistics. They cover the 12-month period ending June 2020 and thus capture what was happening for at least three months of the period after the COVID lockdown. These show 4.3 million incidents of fraud and 1.6 million incidents of cybercrime, a jump of 65% in cybercrime and 12% in fraud compared to the 12 months ending June 2019. Even more worryingly, while the figures are for a 12-month period, A comparison with the previous quarterly figures shows that this increase has occurred in the April to June period of 2020. In other words, the period after the COVID health and economic crisis hit. The size of the increase needed in a single quarter to result in a 65% increase over the whole 12 months could mean actual increases of up to four times this percentage. The figures also show that more than half of all crime is now fraud and cybercrime. I warned in April that this would happen and that organisations needed to ramp up their protection against the surge in fraud and cybercrime. This surge is now hitting us, but it's not too late to act. And you can go to the Crow UK Forensic Services webpages to read more commentary and about what needs to be done to make sure you are properly protected. As the crime statistics show, this very moment, there are some people out there contemplating how they can dishonestly thrive at our expense, and there will also be those under financial pressure planning to maintain their wealth by dishonest means. Legitimate business needs to protect itself properly. Our crisis must not become the fraudsters' and cybercriminals' opportunity. And turning to cybercrime, I've been spending much of my time in recent weeks presenting to organisations all over the world in different time zones about cybercrime, as well as in the UK, finalising new guidance and standards for the pension sector. Cybercrime is one of the problems of our age, together with fraud now representing a large proportion of all crime, as you've just heard. Organisations are more likely to experience cybercrime than many other types of crime, and a high proportion suffer cybercrime breaches each year. we now have a real spike in cybercrime resulting from cybercriminals trying to exploit the current crisis. Most organisations have taken action of some kind, but tell us their biggest challenge is knowing where to target their limited resources and spend to make a realistic improvement in resilience to this rapidly evolving threat. Organised crime groups have diverted resources from drug manufacture and distribution because of the profitable nature of cybercrime attacks. Cybercriminals think that an anxious population, vulnerable people at the highest risk, and masses of disinformation awash on social media represents a good business opportunity. All of this equates to a massive opportunity to prey on organisations and attempt to defraud them while they are at their most susceptible. Phishing and ransomware attacks have increased, and this has been compounded by organisations setting up new ways of remote working at a pace which has not always allowed effective cybersecurity arrangements to be put in place. It is also the case that some organisations don't have an adequate level of visibility of their third party suppliers of technology related services, or indeed enough knowledge of the extent to which they are properly protected or not. Organisations need genuine specialist advice on how to protect themselves in the current climate. The last 20 years has seen expertise concerning technology become a very wide spectrum of specialisms, and deep knowledge is required especially around cybercrime. The person who understands how to keep networks running may not be the right person to advise on protection against cybercrime. So over the last two years, Chrome has invested in a cutting edge capacity to protect its clients against this ever-growing threat. In the pension sector, I chair the cybercrime and fraud working groups for both the Pensions Research Accountants Group, (PRAG) and the Pensions Administration Standards Association, PASA. Prague published new guidance in mid-October, and the new PASA guidance will be published on 9th of November, with standards to follow. Both cover the need for pension schemes and administrators to first understand their vulnerability, what makes them vulnerable, Secondly, to meet legal and regulatory standards, of course. Thirdly, to ensure they are resilient to cybercrime, both preemptive steps to make sure that they can diagnose and strengthen their defences and reactive action so they can manage an attack if it happens, investigate how the attack took place and recover and mitigate any damage. And finally, this is all about making sure that pension schemes remain able to fulfil their key functions. We need to make sure that pensions organisations are properly protected so that in turn we can make sure that the income of pensioners is safe and secure. Now let's turn to this week's interview. This week I shall be interviewing Jonathan Tickner, who is a partner and head of commercial litigation and civil fraud for Peters and Peters, leading firm of lawyers specialising in financial crime. Jonathan and I have previously worked to protect the UK's National Health Service against fraud, a period during which we recovered over 40 million sterling. Hello, Jonathan. It's good to have you on the Fraudcast.
1: Jim, well, thank you very much for inviting me along. It's good to be here.
0: Looking back, why do you think we succeeded in recovering so much money for the NHS?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I think that the first point is that When we worked together and we sort of came on board, we discussed the sort of options that were available. So I think there was a focus on prosecuting fraud purely on a criminal basis. And if the wrongdoer was still within the NHS, then obviously there would have to be a sort of application of employment type remedies. But there wasn't any real focus on what the civil law could do to assist the department, to assist individual hospitals and PCTs at the time, in terms of any sort of asset recovery programme. And I think that that was the key sort of educational process that we embarked on together in terms of effectively teaching that there was what was called the parallel sanctions policy, which obviously we can talk about. But I think that that was the key to unlocking asset recovery process and the sort of the the figures that you've been talking about.
0: Okay, I think I I would agree that was a a big change and there was quite a lot of opposition to doing that, but I agree with you. I think it unlocked, you know, the power of the civil law. And I think probably quite a lot of people, would you agree, don't really understand how powerful the civil law can be?
1: Well, there's always a process of education. That's right. I mean, so it is the case and even now, and this is some 20 years uh, later, there still is a process of education. And I think that what's important to understand is the civil courts are there to assist uh, any litigants. But most importantly, they they will assist victims of fraud. And it isn't the case that if a fraud is identified, and if we're talking, you know, hypothetically, a company loses, I don't know, a million pounds to an employee who runs off with the money. I mean, obviously, consideration could be given as to whether to go to the police. That is a, a perfectly legitimate, laudable, perspective to have. But unfortunately, in the current climate where the police are under-resourced, prosecutions are under-resourced, and fraud is complicated, always has been, there isn't necessarily the breadth of expertise within the police. That isn't a criticism of them. It is primarily a resourcing issue for them. So in those circumstances, a lawyer like myself would always advise looking and important to go down the civil route. So obviously, we're, when we talk about that, we are talking about trying to pursue the wrongdoer by, and locking down assets and trying to find out where the stolen money has gone. So that when we were dealing with work for the department, we looked at worldwide freezing injunctions. We looked at passport orders. All of these were obtained through the civil courts and are a sort of essential tools in terms of fighting fraud indeed
0: thank, thank you Jonathan that gives us a, a bit of an insight into that I mean I have to find what I do to be very interesting I guess that's why I've been doing it for more than 25 years now and I guess you do too but what has been the most interesting case
1: that you've worked on well I mean I think we can obviously touch on whether we did, did for the department but I think there are two cases the, the first one is a fraud that originated out of Brazil where my firm acted as one of the international firms and there were 10 other jurisdictions involved in chasing fraudsters and chasing money most particularly for about 180 million dollars that was stolen from brazilian bank brazilian private bank a lot of it ended up in nigeria but a lot of the money washed through london through accountants very small high street accountants and sort of intermediaries who effectively received cash and then converted it to foreign currency for the purpose of then getting the money out of the jurisdiction. So uh, equally assets were bought here, properties, uh, valuable properties were bought in central London as well. So we were instructed and we started very substantive, what's called Norwich Pharmacal Proceedings in London, that is claims, well, disclosure applications against banks. And there were about 15 or 20 banks in London who we applied for orders against, who had to provide with gagging orders, so they weren't allowed to tell their clients that they were providing this to us, to the victims, who were acting for the family that owned the bank. All the bank statements relating to accounts, which we identified stolen money had gone into. And that sort of really helped unlock the case, because on the back of what was very substantial bank uh, statement disclosure, that were given to experienced forensic accountants who were able to produce all sorts of, of data analytics and spreadsheets and so on, showing where the money had gone. And then we were able to kind of follow a train of inquiry, which included getting further orders against further banks that we identified, but not just in London, but also proceedings in Switzerland, in Hong Kong, in Singapore. And it was an extraordinarily sort of interesting time, I think, for quite a few years. We pursued the wrongdoers. We obtained freezing orders in London, passport orders, but we also obtained charging orders against properties in St John's Wood, in, in Kensington, and so on. And there were blocks of offices in North London as well. And it was coordination that was key between international lawyers. So we had lawyers in those other jurisdictions, including in Miami, in Brazil, in Nigeria. And it was that sort of coordination that really ensured that the clients ended up making you know what was a, 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 a very good recovery so i think you know it was almost sort of not quite a full recovery not sort of 100 pence in the pound but sort of cl- very close to that in the end over a period of about five six years so it's a real advert <laughs> an advertisement for how the english courts can assist victims but also how Internationally, it can also work where, where there is proper coordination between foreign legal teams.
0: I mean, it sounds like a great job, first of all, but um, yeah. it, it just seems to me that if you do have a substantial loss, it really is worthwhile making an investment in the right kind of legal advice to get your money back. Would you say that in most cases of fraud, there is a significant recovery compared to the loss?
1: I wouldn't say that. No, unfortunately, I'm not going to sit here and say that there is, I think that there's obviously a cost uh, analysis that needs to be done. So any victim who wants to use the civil courts, there has to be an understanding about what the cost might be. None of these applications that I'm talking about are unfortunately cheap. There's a lot of of front-loading of work that needs to be done to, as it were, go before a judge to get a freezing order, to get a Norwich Pharmacal order, to get a search order. And often there isn't uh, necessarily uh, a guarantee of return by any means. I think that there is a slight jump into the dark there. Often assets have been identified. So obviously investigators can be on board and they can identify assets which are in the name of the, of the fraudster or of a related party. And often those assets don't need to be the fruits of the fraud for the victim of fraud to make a claim over that asset or to freeze that asset, which is an important point. But I, I don't think that it's certainly anecdotally that I can say that, you know, that for every case that I've worked on, there have been substantial recoveries. Often money is lost. Often you are chasing shadows, particularly where possibly organised crime is involved. But I think where organised crime isn't involved, where we are talking about sort of sophisticated opportunism, or sophisticated fraud, but not at that sort of level. Yes, I think often recoveries are made, substantial recoveries are made. And often the amount of pressure that is brought to bear on defendants means that they want to come to the table to settle. And I think that's a really important point to make, is that part of this whole exercise is to put huge pressure on defendants who don't want to live with freezing waters, don't necessarily want to live with Contempt applications, if you find out that they've lied to you on disclosure orders, you can bring contempt, you can put it into a quasi-criminal context. If they've lied on an affidavit before a civil judge, they can go to prison for that. And so often that sort of pressure, all legitimate, does mean that settlement is often a, a product. And that's ultimately, I think, a realistic scenario for a victim is to reach a settlement and get back what they can.
0: And I guess that pressure builds particularly where you can combine civil and criminal lines of inquiry.
1: Indeed, I think that that's right. I think you have to be very careful in terms of making a complaint to the police, uh, which we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is a legitimate, you know, notifying the police is perfectly legitimate. It doesn't mean that you can rely on the police to make a recovery. But obviously, if, if you go to the police, then that doesn't stop you starting civil proceedings or start civil proceedings and then go to the police three months later. But you're right, that is one point to make. And the other point, I suppose, is the rise of private prosecutions as a legitimate leverage. And that is where, obviously, it doesn't apply to public bodies that have lost money. But where you're talking about companies or individuals, if the police haven't got the ability to prosecute because of resourcing um, issues or whatever, then it is open to specialist lawyers on behalf of a victim to start a private prosecution. And that has, I think, has proved as part of the fraud recovery industry as a real pressure point. I think the question is, you've got to be very careful that improper pressure isn't applied, because obviously you can't use a private prosecution simply as a leverage to to gain asset recovery. It's a slightly different point. But certainly applying sort of pressure from various points often uh, produce results. Yes.
0: Uh, And these tactics, I think, are probably particularly relevant now because at the moment we have lots of fraud taking place concerning the various government schemes to support the economy. There is the recent National Audit Office report concerning the bounce back loan scheme, for example, which I know you commented on. Yeah. What do you think the private sector can do to help the government recover some of its COVID cash losses? Because it probably the government probably doesn't have um, the the resource either in terms of uh, numbers um, or whatever to really itself do that. It would seem to me.
1: No, well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, the private sector, and when I talk about the private sector, we're talking about lawyers, we're talking about specialist accountants, forensic accountants, investigators, of and, and you know, and data analytics, which is which is important all of whom have collectively got huge experience uh, in terms of pursuing wrongdoers and making fraud recoveries on behalf of of clients, probably through the high courts and so on. Now, it seems to me that, as you say, the potential level of losses suffered by the government, by the Treasury and by banks, is such that the ordinary... Police, I just ordered the police, of the, the SFO, and the National Crime Agency. Just aren't going to be fully resourced to be able to deal with that, particularly not through you know through COVID as well, which I think adds a whole other layer of difficulty to investigation of this kind of fraud. So I think that there is an offering there, and I think that there is an offering to assist in basically a sort of public-private type initiative to assist in trying to get money back to the taxpayer. And of course, this is taxpayers' money we're talking about. And so I think, you know, and that is money that could go to the NHS and so on. So I think the question is whether or not there's going to be that sort of light bulb moment in government as to whether or not that is the path they want to go down in terms of trying to work with the private sector to assist in, in investigating this.
0: Let's hope the government is bold enough to embrace that kind of approach, Jonathan. Mm. Finally, um, what do you think the future holds in terms of fraud and financial crime?
1: Well, I think in terms of the the areas that I'm working in, obviously, the growth areas that we have seen, and this is often this fraud litigation is a sort of no stone left unturned type litigation, particularly if you have well-funded parties who are willing to, really pursue fraud and pursue asset recovery so i think what we've seen increasingly is a growth area in contempt applications that is to say where orders are obtained against wrongdoers which include that they have to provide disclosure of their assets but also disclosure tracing type disclosure where assets might be particular specific assets might be and if there is a non-compliance issue then what we have seen increasingly is the growth of lawyers and claimants issuing contempt applications to try and put increasing pressure on those defendants with the threats of committal and imprisonment. Mm. That's one. And I think the other point is the private prosecution point, which I think, again, that is only going to increase. And it was something which originated in sort of the copyright world, but has now taken on a sort of uh, a life of its own. And certainly now I think that the intersection between private prosecutions and civil fraud high court claims is, is, is growing. And I think that there is also recent cases surrounding this and recent cases where judges in the high court are getting concerned about potentially lawyers acting improperly and bringing too much pressure to bear. And there's talking about sort of general increase in hostility and aggressiveness in the conduct of these kinds of disputes. And I think that's an interesting point in terms of certainly from my perspective as someone practicing in the area. I think that the other point to raise is one on internet and sort of cyber security and I think that I know that is one of your hot topics Jim but I think that we've seen an increase of that over Covid and I think that will only grow and I think that really companies like yours and, and ours need to be Alive to clients who are going to continue to suffer at the hands of kind of cyber criminals.
0: I agree. Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a, an excellent interview. And I hope we can uh, do it again when we have more time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Jim. So that's all for this broadcast. I hope you found it interesting. Don't forget to listen again in a month's time. In the meantime, stay safe Make sure you are properly protected against fraud and cybercrime. Thank you. Tune in next time for another episode of Crowcasts. For more information about Crow, our services, industries we advise and insights, visit crow.co.uk. We are an independent member of Crow Global, the eighth largest accounting network in the world. You can connect with us on social media by following Crow UK on LinkedIn or at Crow UK on Twitter.